was born was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. So I want us to look this morning for just a few moments at this story of Moses. And I want to take us all the way back to Exodus, the first chapter. Because you have the story of Moses and you have a time in particular in the nation of Israel. When Jacob and Joseph and all of those had gone down into Egypt and they had stayed there and they had multiplied and they had increased. At this particular time, the nation of Israel was somewhat about two million in populace. And as they were there and, and, and as they were living in the land of Goshen, we understand and know that the Bible says that there was a moment in time when Pharaoh, Pharaoh was like what we know today as our president. He was the king over Israel, Egypt. And Pharaoh became fearful. He got afraid because the nation of Israel had increased so much that he said within, him, within himself and he said to those that were around him, we must do something regarding this nation because what's going to happen, they have become so strong that if we ever go to battle and if we ever have to have an encounter with an enemy, they will turn on us and they will, they will defeat us. So the king of Egypt, Pharaoh in particular, began to devise a plan. And he put a plan in motion that he says we must somehow restrict this, these people from becoming stronger and becoming greater than we are. So the first thing that Pharaoh did was that he enslaved the nation of Israel. Now, I will tell you something this morning. I have never been incarcerated. Anybody, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but, you know, there are people who have been incarcerated. And we are building facility after facility after facility today because people are living lives that oftentimes they need to be incarcerated. My mother told me the other day, she said, Son, I think we're going to have to start locking up all the good people, letting all the bad people run wild because we are building buildings at such a rapid pace and before we get them done, they are completed. But there is nothing worse than for people to be incarcerated. Somebody say amen. Now, I'm not going to let you go to sleep on me this morning because we're going to talk about something that is significantly important in our lives. Amen? But there are different incarcerations, if you will. We know there are physical incarcerations that when you break the law of the land, you get caught and then you are tried. And if you're found guilty, then you are sentenced. And, and the majority of the time, you are going to spend a portion of your time enslaved or incarcerated in an institution. Amen? But I want to tell you something this morning uh, in regard to that. There is nothing worse than people that are incarcerated in their spirit. Amen. That are bound up with something in their spirit. How many know what I'm talking about? I'm telling you, there is nothing worse than, than for people to be bound by vice and to be bound by addictions and to be bound by things that are so unpleasant in their life. But you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, I come that you might have life and that you might have a life abundantly. But he also said, he that the Son sets free, we are free indeed. How many of you know, and I just want to insert this in this portion of this message. How many of you know that many of us and all of us at one time were bound and enslaved by sin? Come on now. How many of you know that we were all sinners? Paul said in his letter to the church at Rome, he said, for we all sinned and we all came short of the glory of God. 
And there is nothing that incarcerates people and binds people and enslaves people more than sin. But I tell you this morning that Jesus Christ came and he died on a cross and he shed his blood so that you and I could be free this morning. Come on, give God a praise because you know that he is able to set you free by the blood of his son Jesus Christ. But we know that Pharaoh went about to, uh, to capture or to enslave all of the nation of Israel. And he said if we make it hard upon them, then they will not produce and they will not become stronger in our land. And that didn't work because he began to make them to become uh, uh, slave the brickyards and how they had to labor uh, from sunup to sundown. But they still grew greater in number. And then he said, that's not going to work. So the next thing that he did, he told the midwives. They were two uh, midwives in particular. If you go back into the book of Exodus, the first chapter and the second chapter, and you began to read, there were two midwives that were like supervisors, and they were over all of the other midwives of the land. And he said, as the Hebrew boys are to be born, you are to kill them making it look like that there was something that happened during childbirth while they were still in labor and while they were still giving uh, birth to the boy babies, they were to, to be slaughtered or they were to be killed and done away with. And we know that, uh, you know, when the devil desires a plan, when the devil puts together a plan to stop and to hinder God's people, how many of you know that God will always work? I'm telling you, God will always work. Because God began to move upon these two women's hearts. And instead of them putting to death the, boy, the boys as they were born, they, they began to, to show favor to the Hebrew women. And, and, and Pharaoh couldn't understand. If, if we're killing all of the men, child, all of the boy babies, how is this group of people becoming greater and stronger and more numerous in our land? They began to investigate and they found out that these people, these two women that had been given the commandment of Pharaoh to kill the, the, the Hebrew baby boys were doing just the opposite. They were sparing them. So it allowed the, the children of Israel to become greater and stronger and stronger. But in all of that, there was a time when the Bible mentions, mentions in Exodus, the first chapter, the second chapter, that that there was a boy or a child that was born by the name of Moses. Anybody ever read the story of Moses? Amen. And the Bible said that his mother looked at Moses and she saw something great in this child. She saw some great potential in this young child's life. And she knew what the king had commanded. She knew what the king had instructed to happen. But in spite of all of that, in spite of what the king had said and what the king had set into motion in place, she said, I cannot put this child to, to death. And I'm telling you why. Because I believe within the heart of Moses' mother, God had begun to speak to her. And she knew that this child was a child that God had his hand upon this child's life. You know, the Bible talks about the children of Israel as they're in Egypt's bondage. And they're there and they're in slavery. And they began to cry out to God. They began to say, God, we know that you're able and we know that you are willing. We just need you to send someone to deliver us. 
And in the mind of, let me tell you something, before you were ever created in your mother's womb, sitting in this building today, can I tell you that God knows or knew your potential. God knew the plan that he has for every one of us in this room. God knew how he could use us to bring victory and glory and honor to his kingdom. Aren't you glad this morning that God has chosen you? Aren't you glad that even before, God says, even before you were conceived, he said, I knew the plan. I know what I intended to do with your life. I'm telling you, sometimes we forget the fact that God has a plan for every life. It's sad to think that in America today we have already murdered over 53,000 babies through abortion. The same thing that Pharaoh was doing in the land of Egypt. The thing that I'm looking at this morning is the fact that, that God has a plan for every child. I look at these beautiful young children as they come into sanctuary. And we don't understand sometimes as we get older and we begin to lose our energy and we begin to lose our, our excitement about life and we look at these little kids and they're just so full of energy. I asked them at the ball game the other night, I said, do they never run out of energy? They said, no. But you know, I think about all of these children, how that God has a plan for their life, how that God can use them, and how that God can bring honor and glory to his kingdom through their life. We should always look at the seed that is coming up. Brother Rich read the scripture this morning as it regards the blessing that is resting upon the seed of the righteous. Your children are called blessed. Your children are ordained of God, and God has a purpose and a plan in their life. But Moses' mother, and you've all read the story, and you know the story how even though the king had said, listen, you must put these children to death, and Moses' mother devised a plan. She began to take this child at a very young age, and she made a basket. How many's ever read the story of Moses? How that his mother made this basket, and she pitched it within and without, almost like the ark that Noah built. And she placed it in the Nile River. Now you think about that, because just in and of itself was a dangerous situation, because this Nile River was infest, infested with crocodiles and, and, and things that could bring destruction even to this child in this basket. But I want to tell you something this morning. She did not fear what the king had commanded to take place. How many times in our life do we not do what God has instructed for us to do because we are afraid of the consequences that man might impose upon our life? I'm going to bring it down to a modern-day concept of things because, listen, we're sitting here today only weeks away from a political vote where we are going to elect a president, and I'm not going to get into politics this morning, but I'm telling you the government and the, 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 the leaders of this country are trying to incite fear even into the church. And I've often wondered, if we're not such a threat to this culture, if we're not such a threat to this society, why are they doing everything they can to eradicate Christianity? We need to wake up and to realize, because can you understand right now, folks, do you understand, and you may not know this, but there is legislations and there are laws that are already in effect to, to restrict and to bind the church from doing what it's supposed to do and what 
what we have been commissioned and commanded to do in the earth. How many of you know that? How many of you have ever heard the hate crime law? The hate crime law simply says that if a pastor stands in the pulpit and names sin and preaches against sin and it becomes offensive to somebody, all they have to do is to file a complaint and they're going to come and impose the hate crime law upon your church. I'm telling you, we cannot fear what men have, 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 have instituted. We've got to obey God. Somebody shout amen. We've got to stand up for truth. We've got to stand up and preach the word of God. I was somewhere yesterday and I heard a woman talking. Oh, I know where it was. I was at home. And a lady called me and I thought, well, why is this lady calling me at home? I knew who she was, and, but I, I had no connections or hadn't talked to her in a long time. And we were talking and she, she called to get Manisha's phone number because she said she heard Manisha sing at my father's funeral and it was such a blessing to her. She just wanted to see if Manisha would sing at her funeral. And I said, absolutely, she'll sing at your funeral. For a nominal fee. And I get a percentage of the fee. Amen? That's the way you got to do business, folks. And we were talking, and she said, listen. She said, I said, well, you're not planning on dying anytime soon, are you? She said, well, I never know. And she began to tell me all of her pains. I mean, you know, some people will tell you their pain whether you ask them for it or not. Hmm? Some people, if you don't want to know how they are, you better not ask them. Because they will take the time to tell you. And she began to tell me all of this and how, you know, the, the problems she's had. And I said, well, listen, sister, I'm telling you one thing, and I believe this, church. Is it all right if I just be myself this morning? I believe this. I believe we are so close to the rapture of the church that it could happen before we get out of this building today. I believe that with all of my heart. She began to tell me all the ailments and pains and situations and circumstances in her life. And I said, well, sister... From the looks of things, we all could be out of here within the next few months. Amen? How many of you believe the rapture of the church is soon to take place? How many of you don't even know what, you're, what I'm talking about when I say the rapture of the church? Well, I ain't going to take time to explain it this morning, but there's a day coming when the redeemed, the blood-bought church of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to exit this planet. The trumpet of God is going to sound. The dead that are in the grave that have died in Christ, they are going to be quickened and made alive. and They're coming up out of the ground, and we which are alive. Sister Ginger, I'm hoping and praying that I'm still going to be alive when the rapture of the church takes place. Amen. And we're going to be caught up in the air to ever be with him in the clouds. Amen. How many of you believe that? Shout amen. And I said that could happen. And she said, I know it is, but she says, seemingly, people are just living as if they, they think they're going to live forever. They have no thought. They have no concern. They have no consideration of the life that they live. Let me tell you something this morning, church. I want to give you a wake-up call. Not everybody's going to heaven. Good people do not go to heaven. Now, let me say that again. Good people are not going to heaven. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who's going to heaven? 
the saved, the redeemed, those that their name is written in the Lamb's book of life, those that have come to a point and a time in their life when they realize the convicting power of the Holy Spirit has made them consciously aware that they are a sinner and they need to be saved and they come and they repent before God and they accept Him as their Lord or accept Him as their Lord and their Master. Aren't you glad that you're saved this morning? I can't save people in this house. Come on, I got any say people that's not ashamed of the gospel. I got any people in this house that knows that if a trumpet of God was sound, they're going to be with him. So I began to talk to this lady, and she said, Preacher, there's nobody, seemingly nobody that's preaching the truth. Nobody preaches. Now hold on to your seat because I'm going to mention a word that might be offensive to you. Nobody preaches concerning and regarding hell. Nobody is preaching and talking about a city that Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, that if I go and prepare a place for you, I am going to come again and receive you unto myself. What is the problem with that? We do not preach that because we are afraid that if we preach that, it will become offensive and people will leave our church and we will not see uh, any way of making it. I'm telling you, you better hear what your pastor's saying. We are shying away from preaching the truth because we are intimidated with the fact, well, it might offend people. I want to tell you something. The Word of God says if you preach the gospel, if you preach the truth, if you preach the cross, it is going to offend people. And what I would say to you this morning that if you're offended over the cross, then you're just offended. Because I do not believe the church can become conforming to the world or conforming to the systems of the world and still please God. I believe there is a necessary time for us to proclaim, teach, and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we have become fearful. But when you look at Jochebed, the thing that she said, no matter what the king says and no matter... The, the, the commandment that he has given and no, no matter all of these things that he has tried to impose upon us we are still going to believe God. Let me tell you something I believe in the face of all adversity we still have to stand true to our faith come on somebody help me preach in this church this morning I believe that we must maintain our, our, our stand and our position in our faith in believing that God is faithful, that he that has began a good work in my life is able to complete it until that day. Let me tell you something. We do not need to become afraid of what's going on in our society and even in our culture today and even in our government. Let me tell you something. Look at your neighbor and say, God's got this thing. Are oh, you afraid to talk to your neighbor? Look at your neighbor and say, God's got this thing, brother. I'm telling you, we do not need to become fearful. For they that trust in the Lord, the Bible said, a people that know their God shall do great and mighty exploits. We are living in a time when our faith needs to rise to an all-time high. Knowing and having complete, total confidence that no matter what men say and no matter what men do, God is still in control. So she says, okay, I'm not going to be fearful. You know, I think sometimes faith looks at, looks at situations like this and simply says, what have we got to lose? Amen? 
What have we got to lose? I think that's the question she asked herself. What have we got to lose if we just put him in this basket and place him in the Nile River? God is in control. And we don't really have anything to lose. You know, faith will always cause you to step out and take a chance. If you can see it with the natural eye, if you can feel it with the natural touch, if you can hear it with the natural ear, it does not require faith. Amen? Oh, preacher, I got a problem. Well, if you have the means to fix your problem, then you don't need faith. Faith is a supernatural work of the Spirit of God working and interacting in your life so that the things you have no control of, it steps in and does the work for you. Now, that's a long definition, but that's really what it means. And we're living in a time when people seem to have lost their faith. But I believe it's time that the church and, and, and the ministers and the leaders of the church stare people up, challenge people to walk at a greater level of faith. So when you look at this, and the nation of Israel now is in, is in a terrible situation and, and in a terrible fix. And Moses' parents had faith that was fearless despite all of the opposition. Despite all of the opposition. As stated above, it was the law of the land that all the newborn male children was to be put to, bed, put to death. But I want you to see something because the parents of Moses believed that God had given a commandment. How many have ever read the commandment or the promises that God gave to Abraham? See, God made Abraham a promise and he said, I'm going to give you a seed. And we preached about that last Sunday. And God even asked Abraham to take that promised seed, that child, Isaac, of whom he loved dearly, and take him to the top of Mount Moriah and there offer him as a sacrifice. And the thing we learned about Abraham was that he believed even though he would slay his child upon the altar of sacrifice, God would raise him up. And the thing that we look at the parents of Moses is that they believed that the promise that God had made Abraham, that he was going to give him a child, and through this child, through this seed, the nations of the world was going to be blessed. He believed the promises, or they believed the promise that God told Abraham that this nation or these people that I'm going to raise up, they are going to possess a land. It was the land of promise. Though they had not even seen the seed, the child that was to be born to Abraham, though they had never saw them enter into the promised land, still their faith was strong, believing without fear that if they obeyed what God had told them to do, God would surely bring it to pass. I want to remind you this morning that the Bible said that the promises of God are yes and amen. They're, they are immutable. Can I tell you the Bible said that God is not the like we are, that he cannot lie or neither is he the son of man that he would ever have to repent. The promises of God have already been established and they are firm and they're anchored in Christ Jesus. Woo! I'm going to shout if you don't. 
Brother, I'm telling you, we got promises that have been made available to us that we have not even remotely began to tap into. And the Bible said that they believe, even though if they put Moses in this basket and put him in the, in the Nile River, that God was able to keep him. Well, let me come down here real quick, and we're going to, because I'm preaching harder than you're, amen, and I'm sweating a whole lot more than you are. But I'm telling you this morning, how many promises have God made you? How many things has God told you? You see, there's over 3,200 promises in the Word of God. And the Bible said they are toward us or they are to us. And we get saved and we think salvation is a wonderful thing. How many will agree that salvation is a wonderful thing? To be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. But I got news for you. Salvation is a moment in time. Salvation is the elementary part. It is the starting point. It is the point where you began to live your life for Christ and you began to live your life to please God. Amen? But let me tell you something. There are many more promises in His Word. There are so many more promises in His Word that He has said are to you. You can have these promises. You can have these blessings. You can know for a surety that God will provide, that God will take care of you. How many of you believe that God will take care of you? Don't matter if Clinton or Trump gets in the office, either one. Y'all looking at me awful strange this morning. Amen. I'm just going to come back here where you're at and talk to you right to your face. Because I'm telling you, we have lost our confidence in God. We have lost our confidence and our ability to believe that if God said it, God will do it. I'm telling you, God cannot lie concerning his promises. And we have to reach out by faith. Despite all of the circumstances of life, despite all of the controversy that we may encounter, we still must reach out by faith and believe that God is in control of our life. So oftentimes we have situations and circumstances in our life that are very negative. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Amen? Any, oh, none of you all ever go through anything negative in your life. Amen? But we all will face those challenges in life that require us to go against opposition, to go against what everybody else says and believe. You know there's people today that will do everything they can to try to discourage you from exercising strong faith in God? You ever had anybody to do you like that? Oh, it'll all work out. Just don't worry about it. Just all work out. Let me tell you something. Everything in life just does not automatically work out. Somebody shout amen. See, I, I know I've been on that side of the fence. And when you look at faith, faith is an action. Faith is an interaction that says, listen, no matter what the situation says, no matter what the government says, no matter what people around me say, no matter how many people try to discourage me, without fear, I'm still going to stand on my faith. When everybody else says it won't work, when everybody else says there's no need, there's no real point in getting fanatical about you trusting God. I want to I encourage you this morning. I want to challenge you as a congregation of people to start living by faith. My mama used to say, boy, if you preach it, you're going to have to live it. Start living by faith. Start learning to trust God. You know, I, I, Debbie was talking this morning about old-fashioned Sunday. How many's ever been to an old-fashioned Sunday? 
I don't even think I could get in my bibbed overalls now, Bob. I may have to buy me some new. But when she was talking about that, and here's the thing that I remember. How many of you can remember, not necessarily old-fashioned Sunday, but how many of you can remember years back, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. I had the privilege of being raised in a strong Christian environment. I had a grandfather that was a Pentecostal preacher on one side of my family, and I had a grandfather and a grandmother. My grandfather was a deacon, and my grandmother was a secretary of the Pentecostal church. So we were raised, and my mother, believe it or not, was a strong Pentecostal preacher until about five years ago when she had a stroke, and it took her speech away. We were raised in a strong Christian environment. And the thing that we were taught and the thing that was practiced in our home was by faith. When you don't know where it's going to come from. You see, the problem with people that live in a blessed society is that we think that we can take care of everything ourselves. We do not learn to depend and trust God. You know what I'm talking about. I've heard my grandmother talk time and time again when she was raising her children. Then you didn't have the privilege of running to the doctor every time they got a sniffle or they got a cold or they became ill. Now, see, we, we don't know anything about a lifestyle like that, do we? Because if we get a little sniffle, we run to the doctor and they give us antibiotics and that takes care of it. So we don't have to really trust God to heal us. Come on. Is it all right if I just talk to you for a minute? But I've heard my grandmother talk about her children that would, that would come down with fevers and, and be sick almost at death's door. There was no doctor. There was no specialist that you could call. You remember, I grew up in a time when you had one family doctor, and he could treat everything. Anybody remember those days? And now you go to your family doctor. He's got to refer you to a specialist who he will refer you to another specialist who will refer you to radiology. And once you get there, somebody's got to read the, the x-rays. So it's a vicious cycle. I'm down where we're living now, aren't I? Huh? But I've heard my grandmother tell time and time again how she would have to go into the bedroom where their children were laying on the sick bed and lay her hands upon that child and rebuke that fever and rebuke that sickness and command healing to come into that body. And you know what? God would show up and God would do what he had promised. That Oh, preacher, you don't believe God still heals, do you? Absolutely. I believe exactly what James says. If any sick among you... Let them call for the elders of the church. Let them anoint them with oil. Let them pray over them. And the prayer of faith will raise them up. Anybody other than your preacher in this house believe that? I have saw it work. You see, I have saw this and I was raised in this mindset. And I've heard my mother-in-law, though I wasn't raised in that family, but I've heard her tell time and time again. She was raising five children. And, and there would be times when there would not be enough money to buy food. 
Come on, I'm preaching where people learn to live and walk by faith. Didn't have enough money to buy food. And she would go in a room and close herself behind the door. And she would begin to pray. And she would ask God to supply the need. And she would hear a knock at the door. And even go to the door and there would not be anybody there. But there would be bags of groceries sitting on her porch. Let me tell you what the Bible said. My God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory through and by Christ Jesus. Have I got anybody here this morning that can believe God to supply your need? I'm telling you, we need preaching like this. We don't need somebody to tell me all the time that as long as I put my money in an offering plate that God's going to make me a millionaire. Most of us sitting in this building will never become millionaires. Even if we did, we wouldn't know what to do with it if we had it. But what we do need, we need to become rich in the things of God. We need to become rich in our faith. We need to become rich in our relationship. We need to be able to walk by faith no matter what the world says. No matter what the circumstance looks like. No matter what the situation says. We need to stand up and say, my God said. My God has declared. And my God has promised. And if he has promised it, he is able to perform it. Come on, if you believe it, give God a praise. You see, we have never had to live like that. But I'm telling you, I believe we're headed for a time that if we're not real careful, the church is going to have to reach back somewhere and grab a hold of some faith that moves the hand and the heart of God. We've been teaching on Wednesday night out of the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew as it regards the signs of the times. And where we are on the calendar of God. I believe, and some people don't agree with me, and that's all right. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying I believe this. You go back into the book of Acts at the the start of the New Testament church. Amen? And you see, after the day of Pentecost, people don't even know when you talk about the day of Pentecost in the church anymore don't even know what you're talking about. Amen? Amen? Do you know what the day of Pentecost was? After Jesus, standing on the top of the hill, was transfigured and he was caught away up in the clouds, he had told his disciples, you go to Jerusalem to a place called the upper room, and you tarry, and you wait there. What were they waiting on? They were waiting on the promise. He said, I will not leave you comfortless, but I will pray the Father, and he will send the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, to come and to live in you and to walk with you, to guide you, to teach you. You're going to have power after the day of Pentecost is fully come. They went to the upper room, and they stayed there 10 days after the ascension. And the Bible said, while all of, all of a sudden, I like that all of a sudden stuff, don't you? Huh? I like that when everybody in least expect it and God begins to move. God begins to do what he says he does. And I'm closing, but I want you to see this. And he said, all of a sudden, there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind and it filled the house wherein they all were sitting. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, I thought I got it all when I got saved. You just need to study your word. Because there's so many promises of power and blessings that come in the word of God. 
But the church, after it was born, birthed on, on, the, on the day, after the day of Pentecost or the day of Pentecost, the Bible said they went into great persecution. Do you know when faith really manifests itself? It's when you're in trouble. Amen. When you get into a situation and a circumstance when you don't know what you do, what to do, and all of a sudden you heard some little old country preacher preaching about if you'll just trust God, if you'll just have faith in God, God will see you through. You know, those people went through some tremendous persecution. They lost their jobs. They lost their homes. They were living in caves. They were suffering. All of these things. But they never denied their faith. They held on to the God in whom they believed. Amen? And I'm thinking that as we come to the close of this church age, we are going to see some persecution that's going to bring us back to the altar. You mean, what is an altar? We look at an altar like a calf looking at a gate. What is an altar? Let me tell you something. God has always required his people to have an altar because the altar is where God meets with his people. Now, the altar is not necessarily a piece of wood or furniture in a sanctuary. For the Bible says the altar is of the heart. There are times when you have to go to your altar and you have to talk to God in your secret place. Amen. But I believe the church, <coughs> you tell me if I'm wrong. I believe the church, and we're already seeing signs of this coming about around the world where the church is coming back and where the faith of the church is coming back to the God in whom they believe in. Folks, we're headed for some terrible times, and I'm not here to preach gloom, doom, and despair, but I'm telling you, we are headed for some times that we better build the altar and we better learn what the altar is about and we better know how to touch the heart of God, and we better not become afraid of what everybody else says. Be proud. Be strong in your faith. Paul said it this way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of what I believe. People that are ashamed of what they believe is not worth their salt. James said it this way, if you're always wavering in your faith, if you become fearful, if you become affected by what's around you and you're up one day and down the next and you're high on faith one day and low on faith, let me tell you something. Your faith should not be measured by your emotions. And Are you getting anything out of this? How many of you know that oftentimes as long as we are emotionally high, oh, we got faith, but it's when we go through trials and tests and our emotions are down here. Our faith, when we're here emotionally, should still be here. Amen? Never let your emotions, never let your circumstance be the measuring stick of your faith. You should be strong in your faith even when the doctor looks at you and says you've got an incurable disease. 
My daddy, if you don't mind me just using this for an example, my daddy was a very private guy. I mean, he, he you know, he, was, he was, had a, a good social life, but my dad was a guy that never expressed what he, you know, I mean, he, he was saying. And i never forget the day that we walked into the, the emergency room in Bristol, and he was very sick. And they came back a little later, and Dad, you, you didn't ever want to go to the emergency room with Dad. Because they lay on him little old, gir- I don't know what you call them things. Called it a bed, but it wasn't a bed. <laughs> and he wear you out. You got to get me up. You got to lay me down. You got to turn me over. You got to. No, Dad. But I will never forget the night. We had been there for almost five hours. And the guy, the guy walked in and he said, Mr. Martin, I see that you're sick. Yes, sir. He said, the diagnosis is from all of the scans that we've done that you've got renal kidney cancer. And me and Debbie just went, boo. I mean, you know, that's bad news. And it has metastasized to your lungs. Dad just laying there. He never showed any emotion at all. So after the doctor went out of the room, Sister Heidi, I looked at him, and I said, Daddy, what do you think about this? I don't think nothing about it. I don't, I don't, it don't bother me. I know who I believe. And in spite of the diagnosis, he did not become fearful. He went through that whole nine-month period fighting this kidney cancer until it metastasized to his bones. And I went in one day, and he was bedfast, and my mom had had us to put her a chair where she could look and talk to him. And I walked in the door, and they was both sitting there laughing. <laughs> I said, what are you laughing at? He said, her mom said, ask him what he said to me. I said, Mom, what did Dad say? He wanted to know who I wanted to cremate me. Say what? He wanted to know who I wanted to cremate me. And I said, well, you're not going to be cremated, are you? No, I ain't dead. (laughs) And I'm like, hallelujah. And he said, ask her what she asked me. And I said, what did you ask him? She said, I looked at him and said, are you ready to go? And he said, I'm ready to go. It just ain't time yet. (laughs) Until the day he left this world, my dad never walked. He never moved. He never wavered. Brother Blaine, he was as strong in the last moment of his life as he was all the years that I knew him in his faith. He had a simple faith in God. He believed no matter what come, God would take care of it all. He was strong in his faith. Let me close, come to the music. And Jochebed and Moses' father believed no matter what the commandment of the king was, no matter what was going on, they still believed that God was going to maintain and preserve the seed and ultimately bring to pass the promise that he had made to his servant Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years before. Now let me close with this because I know we got some young people in this church. And I know you've probably never heard 
preaching like this maybe. But I'm telling you, based upon the authority of God's word, there is coming a day when the church is leaving. There is coming seven years, three and a half years of tribulation and three and a half years of great tribulation upon this earth. What is the tribulation period? And I, I know I'm preaching from Genesis to Revelation this morning, but I got to give you this. The last, especially the last three and a half years, which is known as the Great Tribulation, is the wrath of God poured out upon the, upon the earth without measure. Let me tell you something. Listen to me. Look at me. You do not want to miss the rapture. And I've heard this all of my life. Well, I've heard he was coming. My granddaddy thought he was coming in his age. But he ain't come. But I'm going to tell you, because he didn't come in your granddaddy's age, does not mean the fact that he ain't coming. 